everybody uh, to the continuation of our series of conversations between Apal Bra and Caleb Morpin. I'm Jyoti Bra. I'll be hosting or mediating as ever. Um, and this week we're continuing a conversation that we started last time about imperialism and war and jumping right back in where we left off. Apal, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about nuclear weapons, because we've ever since nuclear weapons arrived on the scene, there's been a kind of um, almost hysteria around them. You know, the, the, their destructive capacity is so large that they somehow have changed everything. And because they've changed everything, uh, we can no longer follow the old politics. So I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about that. Well, the way the Second World War finished is with basically the Americans, American imperialism rather than poor old Americans, the American imperialism used two bombs to bomb two cities in Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and which caused untold damage in terms of human life and material destruction. And some of its effects, the Japanese continue to face even up today. Now this weapon was not necessary to finish the war. The Japanese were beaten and they were willing to surrender. This was known to the Americans, but the bomb was used basically for two purposes. One, to make sure that the liberation of Japan would not take place jointly at the hands of US imperialism and the Soviet Union, as had been agreed prior to, uh, to the war uh, in Japan and, and ending. So they wanted Japan, uh, an, an industrialized country, to be completely under their control. Secondly, at that time, US imperialism was the only power to be possessed of this deadly weapon. And it was actually a warning to the Soviet Union that if Soviet Union did not behave and follow the diktat of US imperialism, what happened to the Japanese would happen to them as well. And in fact, the Americans had marked out 100 cities in the Soviet Union that would be targeted should any trouble arise with the Soviet Union. So this was a dual purpose of using a bomb. And nuclear weapons have always been an instrument of domination and, and an instrument of intimidation to intimidate other people into following the diktat of US imperialism and do whatever it wants, wants, them, wants them to do. This is, that is what happened. And the nuclear monopoly was broken by the Soviet Union in 1949, about the same time that Chinese people achieved their liberation from the joint um, uh, uh, forces of A, Japanese imperialism, and B, of course, uh, uh, the Chiang Kai-shek reactionaries sported to the hilt by, by US imperialism. So that broke the monopoly. But all the same, they had achieved one purpose, that is intimidate the weak-minded people in the communist movement. In this case, I mean the revisionists, who actually, instead of following the revolutionary policies that had been followed prior to that by the communist movement and by the Soviet Union, were duly impressed by the nuclear weapons, although the Soviet Union had broken, broken that monopoly. The Soviet Union was not a back backward country to be intimidated. And after the Second World War, US imperialism really basically stepped into the shoes of German imperialism, Japanese and Italian uh, fascism, 
and it assumed all the responsibilities of trying to dominate the world that those three powers in their own way, particularly Germany and Japan, Japan had, had pursued. And this was recognized by the authoritative meetings of the communist parties in 1957 and 1960. Both that declaration of 57 and the statement of 1960 actually accepted that US imperialism was the biggest danger to world peace. But Christwitz, on the contrary, turned it around following the revisionists of the Second International. Mainly people like Bernstein and Kautsky, but especially Kautsky because he's the, he was the chief theoretician of the Second Inter International and became the chief theoretician of the revisionist Second International afterwards. And they said that nuclear weapons had changed everything. Class contradictions no longer ma mattered. The contradiction between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the contradiction between the uh, imperialist countries and, 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 and oppressed countries, contradictions between the imperialist countries and contradiction between imperialist countries and socialist countries had disappeared. There was only one contradiction and that contradiction was the destruction of humanity or the survival of humanity. And humanity just could not survive a nuclear war. And any war, a national liberation war, could result quickly into becoming a nuclear war. And to use Khrushchev's terminology, it would destroy our Noah's Earth, i.e. this planet. And therefore, the most important thing was to avert that war, not to support national liberation movement, not to support proletarian revolutionary movements, not to actually give support to other socialist countries in resisting US imperialist brigandage, intimidation, and attempts at, at domination. That's really uh, what was done by, by the Christoites. Come back later, but that's a very brief summary. Thanks, Sapal. And before I pass to Caleb, one very brief thought that occurs to me is the, the toll in suffering, the numbers of people who have been victims of imperialism in other ways than nuclear bombs has probably exceeded uh, you know, the toll they claim to be trying to avoid. Caleb. Sure. Well, you know, when you mentioned the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, what comes to mind is, you know, before the, uh, you know, before the end of the Second World War, the Communist Party USA was still under the leadership of Earl Browder, uh, who was later repudiated as a revisionist. And one of the one of the uh, the mistakes of the Communist Party uh, USA during that period was that uh, they actually had a cartoon in the Daily Worker called a one-two punch for democracy and had like a boxer and he had, you know, two fists and it was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and and uh, that was, you know, they were they were, you know, thinking this was a great victory against Japan and against uh, against the German fascists and others. But um, but they later had to repudiate that because they came to understand the, the role that those two nuclear bombings played. That was not a, a big victory against fascism. That was the United States demonstrating that it had nuclear weapons and, and threatening the Soviet Union. It was not militarily necessary. And after that, the Communist Party, you know, a few years later, actually did a lot to expose the crime of, of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and uh, one thing I wanted to also mention was, um, 
you know, you, we, we talk about um, nuclear weapons and the danger of nuclear war. And when I hear you describe how the, the Khrushchevites uh, and the, the Soviet revisionist leadership and the, the leaders of the, uh, you know, the reformist and, and social democratic parties used talk of nuclear war to kind of put the class struggle on hold and to say that, oh, well, you know, there, you know, there's a danger of a nuclear war. Uh, I understand that during the 1980s, that was the main way that the Social Democrats and the reformists urged people to vote for the Democratic Party. Uh, the argument was that if Ronald Reagan is reelected president or if the Republicans you know, gain too much power in Washington, we're going to have a nuclear war and we're all going to die. Right. There's going to be a nuclear war. So therefore, you just have to vote for the Democrats. You can't have independent action. Uh, you, you know, it was a way to kind of restrain the activism. And it's very similar to how climate change is used nowadays, right? We all have to vote for the Democratic Party or else the earth is going to burst into flames uh, from, from the climate. And, um, you know, that, that's a similar argument. They create kind of an alarmist, you know, if, if, if one wing of, of the ruling class doesn't, you know, succeed, we are all going to die. It's going to be awful. So just put your revolutionary aspirations, put the, the movement of the working class on hold because uh, because it's just too serious of a situation. Uh, that's a common reformist trick uh, that we see in, in terms of rhetoric. You see me nodding away there, Caleb, because it was exactly the same point I was thinking, the parallel with Extinction Rebellion and their tactics of like kind of terrifying you, the, the world's about to end and you can't wait for social change to fix it now. But the problem is the only solution to the problem they've identified is the social change that they say we haven't got time to worry about. You know, so in fact, they're diverting people who ought to be being harnessed for the socialist movement into an avenue of actually harmless activity. Their activity does nothing to either fix the problem they've identified or to change society, right? But they run around feeling very panicked and therefore, you know, in an emotional state where they're very easy to manipulate and very easy to point, you know, by demagogues at various straw men who are not their enemy, you know, and ultimately a lot of the time they spend blaming other workers for the problem they are failing to fix because they're following a totally wrong, you know, ideology and analysis of what the problem is and how it's going to get fixed. Um, and, you know, I think that's exactly, you know, kind of perfect analogy. It's interesting when you look at the way the US used its monopoly of nuclear weapons immediately to inflict what was basically a punishment beating. And you look at, you know, you think about that, the scale of that beating, simply to demonstrate to the world, stay in line or else. And it reminds me a lot of Libya, feel like exactly the same thing, stay in line or else. We have all the power, you have none. If you don't keep in line, this is coming to you too. Right? That is how imperialism works, right? And actually, if we stop and think about it, if we, if we step back a little bit from this, like, <gasps> nuclear weapons are so big, go back to World War I, we have had industrial levels of slaughter in imperialist war for more than 100 years now. And the imperialists showed in World War I, they had invented machines that could kill on an industrial scale, machine guns. And they were prepared to throw workers in front of them in their thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and they didn't care how many died to move the lines forward a bit one day and back a bit the next day you know it, it meant nothing to them the lives of those people that they you know squandered in that way so criminally so we didn't need 
nuclear weapons to show us that imperialism means death on an industrial scale. And that's even besides all the deaths that these people never seem to count, which is which are just as unnecessary and actually just as violent. You know, there's millions of babies dying in their mother's arms every year. Is that not the violence of imperialism from hunger, from malnutrition? They don't count any of it, you know, but they, they create this kind of bogeyman in order to distract people from the fact that the job we have to do is organize the forces for social revolution and nothing else is going to fix this problem, right? Sorry, Dad, back to you. Um, just before I come, come to the main point, one of the things that, uh, since Caleb mentioned Ronald Reagan, was that Ronald Reagan was extremely volatile and eccentric and you didn't know when he pressed the button and destroy the world and this was actually also partly deliberately cultivated about reagan in order to frighten every opponent of, of, of u.s imperialism and u.s imperialism milked it very much but ronald reagan um, uh, probably i'll be controversial saying that was not as stupid as he looked in fact you must remember it was he who, along with Gorbachev, agreed to a tremendous reduction in nuclear arsenal of both these two countries, which had the largest uh, um, amount of nu 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 nuclear weapons. But coming back to this, this whole question of nuclear weapons, what since the Second World War has prevented a war breaking out, especially a nuclear war between the two um, biggest superpowers at that time, Soviet Union and, and America, and subsequently other places are twofold. One, the fact that the Soviet Union had broken the monopoly of US imperialism in the field of nuclear technology and had produced its weapons. And by the time of Leonid Brezhnev, it had achieved parity in the strength of nu nu nuclear weapons. And secondly, apart from Soviet uh, nuclear weapons, it was the Soviet Red Army, which was the guarantor of peace on the European continent. It's not NATO that brought peace. In fact, NATO was an instrument of war. It's the Soviet Union and the nuclear weapons pressed at the, possessed at that time by the Soviet Union, but subsequently by China as well, that had preserved peace. I have always been of the opinion, not always very popular. I don't care I'm not popular with the bourgeois sections of society, but when one becomes unpopular with the so-called leftists, that is a matter of concern. It has been a matter of concern to me. I've always welcomed more countries getting their hands on nuclear weapons. You know, it's like Lenin said, let everybody be a bureaucrat, bureaucrat and there will be no bureaucracy. Let everybody learn to manage the Soviet state and manage the affairs of government so that nobody can be a bureaucrat. Let more countries have nuclear weapons so that they lose their frightening as aspect I mean, I said at one, one of the conferences at the Brussels, when the Brussels seminar used to be held one, once a year, and just as a matter of jest uh, to make people laugh, you know, at conferences, people get bored listening to speaker after speaker. I said, I am in favor of nuclear weapons possessed by other countries. That imperialist countries should not have the monopoly. When India and Pakistan exploded their bombs, a lot of left-wing people, including in India, uh, condemned India and Pakistan. I, on the contrary, and my comrades in the Indian Workers Association applauded that, 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 that development. I said, personally, if I could afford it, 
and I had the technology. I'd install it in my back garden because there are a lot of people giving me trouble and they should know what will happen to them if I had nuclear weapons. But that's, of course, making the whole thing look ridiculous. I'm in, 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 in favor of nu 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 nuclear weapons. And, and it's like you, you go to an Indian village. Who has the guns? Who has the most guns? The landlords, not the poor people. If one poor person gets a gun, it's the talk of the village among all the landlords. It's not very good. We have so-and-so poor person having a gun. The imperialist wants other countries to, to be to be to be to be to be disarmed, disarmed, and and and, and so. I'm, as far as I'm concerned, if disarmament has to take place, let all the imperialist countries get rid of their nuclear weapons first. Failing that, let there be universal nuclear disarmament, verifiable, that everybody gives up their nuclear weapons. At the time of the uh, uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaty, it was promised by the nuclear powers that they would try and get rid of their own nuclear weapons. Now, while imperialist countries continue to press on the non-imperialist countries to give up their nuclear weapons, the nuclear technology gets more and more sophisticated. America, while condemning the DPRA for any nuclear test or any missile it actually tests, condemning the DPRA is every day conducting experiments in order to improve its nuclear, nuclear, nuclear technology. I see no reason why the DPRK should obey any such dictate and I take my hands off to the DPRK that they are a small country with a population of 22 million sanctioned from uh, by imperialism for the last 60 odd years and they continue to caucus nuke at imperialism. They vote the right way every time in the United Nations and now while the Ukraine war is going on they sent their engineers and technicians to help the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics to repair their infrastructure and, and help them in every possible way. So what has maintained peace so far are the, is the strength of the socialist countries and also, of course, the possession by them of nuclear weapons. Every day you hear Iran must not be allowed to acquire nuclear weapons. Iran hasn't got nuclear weapons. What is more, Iran has said, we do not wish to produce nuclear weapons following their own ideology, which is not mine, they say it is anti-Islamic to produce nuclear weapons. But next though, not very far, Israel has nuclear weapons. Do you hear any complaint about Israeli nuclear weapons? If nuclear weapons are such a dreadful thing to have, why not ask the Zionist, racist and oppressive regime which has stolen the Palestinian people's land and continues to oppress them in every possible way? It refuses to let Palestinian people who are suffering from serious diseases to go abroad and get treatment. It prevents them from importing medicine. It has turned Gaza into the largest open air prison in, in the world. Do they talk about it? No, they don't. It's a class question. There's no human reason under the present system. There is the reason of the proletariat and the oppressed peoples, and there is the reason of the imperialists and the exploiters, and the two shall never meet. There's a constant struggle going on. And the only way to actually achieve world peace is to destroy imperialism. That is the, uh, I hate to use this word, that is the final solution. 
There is no, there, 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 there is, there is, there is no other way around it. And we should not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Christian white imperialism, sorry, Christian white revisionism, said a new, a little um, war of liberation could spark a nuclear war. Well, since then we had the Vietnam War, we had the Korean War, we we have had endless number of wars wars in the in in in, in, in the Middle East, and American imperialism hasn't won any of them. Has it led to a nuclear war? Has it led to the destruction of any country through nuclear weapons? No. The only way to prevent imperialism from launching the, this kind of war is for the people of the world to be united and have forceful movements in every country that actually uh, are against, against war. Although war in general cannot be prevented, specific wars, especially a nuclear war, can be prevented by the strength of the people, i.e. the strength of the socialist countries, of the national liberation movements, of the proletariat in the imperialist countries and the oppressed people all over the world is the unity of those people which can prevent imperialism from using using nuclear weapons. There's no reason to be frightened, 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 frightened of that. Christian was saying, I mean, Pravda even came up with a, with a headline: "If your head is chopped off, what's the point of having principles?" Now, this was such a statement of outrageous renegacy. That means hundreds of thousands of Soviet people who died during the October Revolution and the subsequent civil war, and the 27 million who gave their lives in the fight against fascism during the Second World War were fools because they had their heads chopped off. What were their principles worth? No, principles are worth more than nuclear weapons. As Chairman Mao said quite rightly, if imperialists continue to behave the way they do, the people of the world will hang them by, 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 by their neck. He made the statement, the East wind is prevailing over the West wind. The East wind will win. Now he was a straight away renounced, denounced by the Soviet revisionists and, 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 and the puppets in Eastern Europe and many other, other, other countries, that this was a racist statement that the people of the East were going to prevail over the West. No, it wasn't. He was using an ancient Chinese metaphor which simply meant socialist forces and the forces of national liberation were stronger, they were prevailing and they will defeat imperialism and they will de defeat the exploiters. And that is our stance and we must continue to do so. If China could do it at a time, caucus look at imperialism when she was much weaker than China today is, I'm sure there's much hope these days because socialist countries and national liberation movements are in many ways strong. It may not look like it when we look around the world, especially since we live in the centers of imperialism, where there's not much of a revolutionary movement. And people who come to the revolutionary movement pretty soon give up uh, uh, on it because they want to find easy solutions to, to, to victory. And easy solutions usually are to follow social democratic parliamentary line. And we must never forget Christopher feast on the nuclear weapons very much connected with the whole thesis which was con consolidated in the 22nd Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Not just peaceful, uh, uh, you know, development to revolution, you know, peaceful coexistence, everything. The world problems can be solved by the leaders of US imperialism and the leaders of the Soviet Union. If they were united together, 
Khrushchev said, we only have to raise our finger at anybody who's falling out of the line and they'll soon fall in, 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 into line. It didn't happen. American imperialism didn't play, play, play ball. That's precisely why Khrushchev went from one extreme to the other, either adventurism, like installing nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba, or capitulationism, taking those missiles away. Well, this would never have happened under the time of Joseph Stalin. Whatever the Soviet Union did, it would be after deliberate and considerate discussions and coming to a certain conclusion. Once she had taken that stand, she would stand by it, as was proven by, by their position during the Second World War and the Berlin uh, 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 crisis that, that arose, arose um, almost at the, at the same time. Caleb. Well, a lot comes to mind, but I think it's important to acknowledge that the Korean Workers' Party, uh, under the circumstances that the DPRK was in, in the uh, the 1990s, it, it was necessary for them to proliferate nuclear weapons. Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they faced a, a, an economic embargo from the United States. They couldn't import petroleum in order to run their food system, and it caused huge problems. They, they call that period the arduous march. And as they saw, you know, their country facing this big crisis because they were barricaded and the Soviet Union, their close ally had, had fallen and they were cut out of the world market, uh, they saw they were under attack and under threat from the United States. And so they, they, they started taking moves toward developing nuclear weapons. So then the Bill Clinton administration, they moved ahead uh, and they made a deal with North Korea that they wouldn't get nuclear weapons. In exchange, they would be given heating gas, they would be given food aid, they would be, uh, that basically the United States was going to help them develop uh, peaceful nuclear energy. All these promises were made, an, an agreement was made. Uh, and uh, it's, it's amusing, Madeleine, I think it was Madeleine Albright, who was Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, she met Kim Jong-un uh, and she said, uh, or I think it was Kim Jong-il she met with, uh, and uh, and she said, wow, she said she was impressed that he was a, a very intelligent person, as if the leader of a country of 22 million people might might be intelligent. It was just like a shock to her that, you know, but, but this deal was made. Um, and uh, the Clinton administration made this deal with the DPRK that they wouldn't proliferate nuclear weapons in exchange for all this aid. Some of the aid was delivered, but then uh, the U.S. Congress would not fund the deal. And the U.S. Congress voted and prevented uh, the Clinton administration and later the Bush administration from fulfilling that promise. So, so the DPRK had made an agreement in exchange for not proliferating nuclear weapons, uh, and they didn't get their their you know end of the bargain. And then when George W. Bush gave his axis of evil speech, uh, where he he said that there's an axis of evil in the world: Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. At that point, they said, OK, not only have we not gotten what we wanted, but now you've put us on a list of countries you want to invade and overthrow. And so they went ahead and they developed nuclear weapons. And it makes perfect sense that they would do so under those circumstances. Um, and uh, it's important to point out that uh, they did put out a statement after the death of Muammar Gaddafi uh, where they said, look, you know, Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And they were invaded and toppled by the imperialists. Libya at one point had a, a nuclear weapons program or whatever, but then uh, you know they uh, they gave it up uh, mistakenly. And look what happened to Libya. Well, we proliferated nuclear weapons and we have them, and it looks like uh, looks like we made the right decision. And it's very hard to argue against them. Uh, and it seems like history has affirmed them. Now, what's very disappointing 
is the Communist Party USA. Uh, they actually cut their relationship with North Korea when they proliferated nuclear weapons and they condemned them. The People's World wrote an article uh, condemning them for their nuclear test, uh, saying I think the headline was something like no way to act. And, you know, the Communist Party USA that had a longstanding relationship with the DPRK at that point ended its relationship with them. And that was that was quite disappointing um, uh, to see them take that move. Uh, and uh but yeah, I mean, they they had no choice but to do so. Now, it's important to to realize that, you know, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is something that Russia and China both feel enables them to have a certain level of security, right? They feel that it prevents the United States from giving nuclear weapons to all of its allies. It doesn't put them in a situation where they would then have to provide nuclear weapons to all of their allies. And the reason that Russia and China go along with the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and the reason they go along with sanctions against North Korea, I believe, is because they fear what could happen if the non-proliferation treaty were to be lifted. But North Korea does make the point that the nuclear non-proliferation treaty says you're allowed to leave, right? There's nothing in it that says it's like a gang where you can't, you know, you once you're in, you're in for life or something like that. It doesn't say that. So the DPRK makes the point that, look, we were in the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and uh, we got to the decision, we made a decision to leave and we have the right to do so under the treaty. So uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons by the DPRK, it needs to be understood in this historical context. The way it's discussed in American media is that uh, North Korea is just this dangerous, extreme country and they want to murder all Americans. And so they've decided to get nuclear weapons. And that's just just so far from the reality of the situation. It's almost laughable. Um, we did see a few years back a very a very suspicious provocation um, in the U.S. You know the U.S. state of Hawaii. You know it's islands. Uh, it's an archipelago out in, out in the uh, the ocean, uh, the Pacific Ocean. There was a, a cell phone alert sent out to everyone announcing that a nuclear weapon from North Korea was on its way, and there was widespread panic. Uh, you know, and there's there's all kinds of video on the internet of people you know flipping out when they saw when they received this alert on their phones about what was going to happen. Um, now, the U.S. government officials said it was an accident. Oh, that was purely an accident. You know, that was some kind of experiment. Clearly, they were they were trying to see what kind of reaction they would get uh, by telling people in Hawaii that they were all going to die from a nuclear bomb from North Korea. Um, and I, I, I remember Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who was at that point representing Hawaii in the U.S. House of Representatives, spoke up very loudly about it and became a big supporter of improving relations between the United States and the DPRK at that time. Uh, and many people looked on and they said that was not an accident. That was some kind of, you know, psychological experiment. And, you know, convincing Americans we're all going to die from a nuclear bomb from North Korea. Uh, this is this is something that they worked very, very hard at doing. So um, that's all what came to mind as as uh, Harpal was talking. Thanks, Caleb. Can, I mean, can, 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 can I just make, make one point uh, following on from, from Caleb? It wasn't just the North Koreans who drew the conclusions that if they didn't have nuclear weapons, they'll, they'll be invaded. It was also the conclusion reached by U.S. imperialism. The same Madeleine Al Albright made the statement that Iraq was invaded because it didn't have nuclear weapons and North Korea is not because it has nu nuclear weapons. Because there's only one logic that imperialism accepts. That is the logic of force. If they hit you on the chin and you can hit back once or twice U.S. imperialism, then they begin to res res respect you. That's the only time that the logic actually penetrates 
thick skull of imperialism. You know, as 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 on the seventh, speaking on the seventh anniversary of the Paris Commune, Marx said the proletariat has to win its life, right to liberation on the field of battle. The oppressed people and the proletariat of imperialist countries has to win its right in the field in in in, in, the, in the field of battle. In the, in the in the in the field field of battle, and and people who renounce violence, people who renounce um, um, civil war, for example, have basically renounced the right of the proletariat to liberate 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 it, it, itself. And why is it that not much fuss is made, not only about Israel, but India, and to a certain extent Pakistan having nuclear weapons? Not because they're big, it's because imperialism hopes to cultivate them for their own, own particular purposes. But for whatever their reasons, I'm a big supporter of India possessing nuclear weapons, as indeed of our next door neighbor, Pakistan, because that those nuclear weapons actually have even brought peace between Pakistan and India, because there's a limit to what each country can, 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 can do to the other. And the same nuclear weapons have brought peace in many other part, parts of the world. U.S. imperialists would love to be in a situation where it was the only country that had nuclear weapons. It had no humanitarian qualms and concerns about use of weapons. They used against the Japanese, they were used against anybody as long as there was no threat of retaliation. It's the ability of other countries to retaliate and hit them back that keeps world, world peace. It's not the reasonableness of the leaders of U.S. imperialism, be they nice sounding like Kennedy and, 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 and uh, Eisenhower, or be they nasty sounding like Reagan. None of that really matters. What matters is the ability of the people to actually uh, uh, hit, hit them back. And it's a pity that the proletariat of the imperialist countries is not yet uh, launching attacks against their own bourgeoisie. Once that happens, the game is up and no nuclear weapon will be able to stop that. The, no matter how small they are, revolutionary parties in the imperialist countries must stick to the principles. You know, if we hold on to our principles, we will expand. We will be able to convince the larger members of proletariat, even if it takes years and years, as in my case, it's taken a whole life. But I haven't given up the hope that this will happen. My faith in socialism is as ardent or even more ardent than it ever was in my, in, in my youth. And people have to stick to those principles. We've got to go back to those principles. We've got to see, say that without a revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. And that the proletariat must have its own revolutionary party, its revolutionary organization, its own general staff. No army can do without a general staff. And without the proletarian party, there is the proletariat has no general staff, it's disarmed. So we must concentrate on that and must all the time expose imperialism, what it is, that it is not actually seeking uh, to live by peaceful methods. It's not wanting freedom. It's not wanting uh, people to be liberated. It's, it's seeking domination. The rules-based order of propagate, propagated by US imperialism means they make the rules and you follow them. If you don't follow them, you get invaded. That's what the rules-based order is. And we must repudiate it 
and kick it out of our own premises and say, no, we're not following that rules. We make our own rules. These are proletarian rules, rules of the oppressed people, and we shall fight against you till you are no longer a part of current history, but become a kind of, you know, the dustbin of history. Thanks, Dad. You've reminded us of a couple of really important points there. Um, you reminded me of a quote by Chairman Mao. Sorry if I get it slightly wrong, but I, it's along the lines he said, the people's will is stronger than atom bombs. And, uh, you know, it kind of sums up, doesn't it? The fact that the, the power of the masses is the most powerful force known to history. It's the most powerful force on the planet. If it can be aroused, if it can be harnessed and directed, there's nothing, there's no threat that's enough to overcome it. There's no weapon that's big enough to stop it. And um, you've also highlighted the importance of us understanding that our best defense is our ability to fight back. And, you know, the history of the DPRK, has, as you both explained, has amply proven that fact. Um, I, and it brings me on to the, the next kind of thing I wanted to talk about, really. You know, we, we think about, you know, we, we worry, we can see that the, the, the expansion of the war in Europe to East Asia and its it's kind of uh, becoming a global conflagration, the outbreak of, if you like, World War III, which in some ways, you know, you could say has already started, but in terms of it becoming a global event has not yet uh, kicked in, but looks very likely. You know, of course, we don't, as human beings, we don't want to see that kind of destruction. We don't want to have to go through another world war and everything that that means for humanity. Um, but, Despite the fact that the imperialists are, are facing an ever stronger, more united and very capable in terms of defense and economic and technological ability to, to look after themselves and military ability to defend themselves and their allies, um, it doesn't seem to be slowing down the drive to war very much. Uh, so my question really is, um, is there a way to prevent the outbreak of a new world war? Paul. Is there? Is there a way to prevent the outbreak of a new world war? Uh, it basically is, and uh, you quite rightly pointed out, our ideology is our most potent weapon. If the people of the world have the will and strength to believe that it's not weapons that decide the fate of humanity, it is actually the pe people. And also, the monopoly of a nuclear monopoly of imperialism has been broken. It was broken by the Soviet Union in 49. In 1950, the Korean War started. And during that war, when as the American imperialists were being beaten to a standstill, and General Douglas MacArthur wanted to use nuclear weapons. The very same president of the United States, Harry S. Truman, who had used nuclear weapons against Japan, dismissed General MacArthur because by that time it had become far too dangerous to use these nuclear weapons against, 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 against the Soviet Union. And this war was horrendous. It killed four million uh, uh, the, the people of, of DPRK and it killed tens of thousands of Chinese people's volunteers who, were, uh, who had entered that war uh, in order to resist US aggression, help Korea, and defend China. These were the three ba underlying bases of the, of the participation of the of, of People's Republic of China 
in, in, in that, that particular, particular world. And although American people would have dearly loved to have used these weapons against, against China and against the DPRK, they were unable to do because the balance of forces had changed and the will of the Korean people, assisted by their Chinese comrades and also assisted by the Soviet Union, was far too strong. It could not be overcome. And it was, there was a real coordination between the socialist countries those days. They sang from the same hymn sheet. The Soviet Union did not send soldiers directly, but everybody knew, including President Truman, that Soviet pilots were flying the planes that had DPRK markings painted on them. DPRK had no air force at that time. China did not have an air force at that time. So these were Soviet planes flown by Soviet so, uh, airmen. And of course, it's natural that every now and then they break into their own language. And this was picked over by, by US intelligence. But they kept quiet until the end of the war because if it was known that Soviet airmen were flying these, these planes which were causing devastation to the American forces, there would have been a clamor for war between the Soviet Union and, 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 and uh, American imperialism. But that war could not be waged. It was realized by the higher echelons of US administration for two reasons. Soviet Union was extremely popular among the people, peoples of Europe and the people of the world. It had only recently defeated German, German fascism. It had made a tremendous sacrifice. So war against Soviet Union would have been a very dangerous one. And secondly, it would have been dangerous because the Soviet Union also had nuclear weapons. So if that war did not result into a nuclear conflagration, nor has any subsequent war, every one of which imperialism has lost. They lost the Vietnam War. They had lost the Korean War. They've lost the war in Iraq. They've lost the war in, in, in Syria. Everywhere they go, they spend Afghanistan and they, they, keep, they keep on losing. But it hasn't led to new, new, new use of nuclear weapons. What would happen if they used nuclear weapons against Afghanistan? It just wouldn't affect, affect, affect Afghanistan. It affect neighboring countries as well. You think that will make imperialism very, very, very popular? It would only embolden the people of the world that this nasty system must be brought to an end because that's what it does, does to ordinary innocent, innocent people by use, by use of, use of these, 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 these weapons. And ideology is very important. Since 1917, October Revolution, the world has changed. And whatever the zigzags of history, whatever the vicissitudes of the movement, rise and fall, advance and retreat, the, on a historical scale, the movement of liberation of the proletariat as well as the oppressed of people is on the increase. I made this point before, and I don't mind repeating it. If the such backward leaderships as the Afghan leadership in the war against American imperialism can win, it is in no small degree to the fact that the October Revolution has changed the landscape. The chance of ruling people, colonizing people are gone. And this is something that the thick skulls of the Zionists in Israel have not yet got it. That the, they have come late in history to the stage of colonizing other people. They cannot colonize the Palestinian people. No matter what suffering they go through, 
no matter the horrendous sacrifices they make, no matter the, no matter the torture uh, that they're, they're, they're subjected to, they continue to fight every day. Yes, for every Zionist killed, five Palestinians are killed on a daily, daily, daily basis. The Zionists don't have their breakfast before killing a Palestinian. This happens all the time. And the peace-loving, democratic, imperialist country cannot even say that this is taking place. So the Palestinians, like any other people, have to win their right to liberation on the field of battle. And they're doing it in the most difficult of circumstances. And the proletariat in the imperialist countries has a duty to support them and not be intimidated by accusations of anti-Semitism. No, we're not anti-Semites, but we're against colonialism, we're against oppression, we're against imperialism. The Jewish people have a tremendous history of leading and being in the vanguard of the liberation and proletarian movement. How many people of Jewish origin were in the leadership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. How many in the other parties? We actually, I personally am a great admirer of the contribution that the Jewish people have made to the development of world civilization and to world socialism. These are the people we should worship and not look at, the, at with awe, as Lenin said, at the backside of the rabbis and, 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 and in the name of being not anti-Semite, allow them to commit atrocities of the type they're committing. They cannot put forward an argument. They cannot win by reason. So every university in America is coming up with new rules that prohibit the propagation of the rights of Palestinian people. Now to say that Palestinian people should not be subjected to, to Zionist oppression is not being anti-Semite. If I was a Jew, I would be doing exactly the same because I think it's an insult to the Jewish people and their history that the Zionism has put them in the position in which they are, whereby they are oppressing other people. Having been oppressed for hundreds of years themselves, they have now been turned into the position of oppressors. And thinking Jews oppose this kind of policy. There are journalists in, the, in, in Israel. I can remember one definitely. Mr. Levy, who writes for Haaretz, and he, I, I'm actually amazed that he's allowed to write there because you can't say anything without being called an anti Semite. I'm sure they call him self hating Jew. He's not a self hating Jew, he just is activated and motivated by humanitarian concern for the oppressed Palestinian people. And I think we should not be in, intimidated into silence because people will accuse of us of, of anti-Semitism. The more people say that, especially the more Jewish people say that this is wrong, what the Zionists are doing, the, the better off the Jewish people generally would be, as indeed would be the Palestinian people. Caleb. Well, I back to our main topic about nuclear weapons. Um, you know, I'm, we're talking about how nuclear weapons have changed the, the face of imperialism and war. I'm forced to think of, you know, there's a Pentagon strategist uh, whose writings uh, were quite influential on the United States towards uh, towards in, in kind of the later years of the U.S. military conflict in Iraq. His name was um, William S. Lind. And William S. Lind, he wrote about the concept of what he called fourth generation warfare. 
Uh, and basically, the argument was that in the age of nuclear weapons, a straight confrontation between two great powers, uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States, China and the United States, it's not feasible because it will result in mass assured destruction of nuclear weapons. So increasingly, if you look at conflicts like the Vietnam War, if you look at you know the, the situation where the Soviet Union sent its forces to Afghanistan to defend the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan against Osama bin Laden and the, the Al-Qaeda forces that were backed by the United States, uh, the role of what they call non-state actors in military conflicts is very essential um, because great powers cannot directly confront each other. Um, and that actually is very important, and that makes revolutionary and, and anti-imperialist and Marxist organizations very important, right? When you have states fighting each other, you know, you know, one big state fights another big state. Uh, when you have that, uh, you know, it, it can just be my country versus your country. But when when there are great powers fighting each other and uh, they can't fight each other directly, um, if you look at the role of, of ideological organizations, of people that are very committed to a certain idea, whether it's a religious idea or a political idea, they can become very, very important in the conflicts that break out in countries uh, that are, in, in many cases, a fight between great powers. And people talk about the role of uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah is a Shia Muslim revolutionary anti-imperialist organization. Um, and that, you know, yes, they they apparently receive a lot of support from Iran, but they have given voice to uh, the Lebanese people and their anti-Zionist and anti-imperialist feelings. Uh, they, they represent, you know, the working class. They are aligned with the Communist Party. Um, and that they were a result of, of kind of, you know, these kind of developments. Um, and that also, the U.S. imperialists then have tried to manipulate this. And if you look at the late Cold War with uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, when he was kind of running, uh, you know, and reorienting U.S. foreign policy in the aftermath of the defeat in Vietnam, uh, the strategy suddenly became rather than um, rather than having the Cold War be fought on straight up ideological lines, capitalism versus communism. Um, there became a desire to kind of manipulate uh, different revolutionary forces and anti-imperialist forces around the world against each other. And that was a, a strategy that was quite effective for U.S. imperialism. Uh, if you look at, you know, the Iraq-Iran war, I mean, here you have the Islamic revolution of Iran, an anti-imperialist Shia Muslim revolution, and you have the Iraq Iraqi government, Ba'athist Arab socialism, an anti-imperialist uh, you know, movement, but the U.S. imperialists played these two revolutionary anti-imperialist currents against each other, um, you know, and it was very effective. And at least a million people died. Chemical weapons were used. It was it was a disaster the way that they manipulated the Ba'athist Arab socialists of Iraq against the Islamic revolutionaries of Iran. Uh, you look at the Camp Hushia War, uh, where, you know, Pol Pot was being backed by the United States. Uh, and, and China to attack Vietnam, which was aligned with the Soviet Union, and you had communists killing other communists. And uh, in the era of fourth generation warfare, uh, the imperialists have kind of reoriented their strategy to manipulate uh, various revolutionary movements against each other in order to maintain power. And if you look up to the lead up to the fall of the Soviet Union, in many African countries, their ability to manipulate various revolutionary anti-imperialist groups and movements against each other was very effective. Uh, in places like Ethiopia, for example, 
you had revolutionary Marxist-Leninist parties on all sides. Uh, you had a, a party that was aligned with China on one side. You had a party that was aligned with the Soviet Union on another side. You had a party that was aligned with Albania on another side. And the imperialists were very covertly giving guns and weapons to, to certain forces, but not saying so publicly. Uh, and and this is this is how they've learned to manipulate things. And it's made things very, very confusing. Um, at one point I was, I was in Iran, uh, and I was, I was, you know, when you go on international trips, you end up sitting at, at, at tables with, with political forces you might not be sitting with elsewhere. And there was somebody who was quite a far right wing person, uh, from, uh, from Spain. And I, uh, uh, and, um, you know, he said, well, he said to me something to the effect of like, well, why, why is it that the communists are supporting the, uh, the fascists in Kiev? And I said, well, it's not all the communists. I said that, you know, it's that's the Trotskyites, that's the anarchists. They're the ones that are supporting the fascists in Kiev. But I said, but it's the, the you know, the anti-revisionists and the Marxist-Leninists. They're supporting the People's Republics and, and Donbass and Lugansk. And he said, oh, he said, there's a similar divide in the far right wing. You know, in the United States, there are far right wing forces that are fanatically supporting the Azov Battalion. But there are also far right wing forces in the United States that are sympathetic to Russia and sympathetic to the peoples of the Donbass. And that this, this manipulation of of different ideological organizations and the way this is being done i mean this is kind of how geopolitics is playing out and it's largely a result of the fact that nuclear weapons are a factor that you can't just have a straight up confrontation if the usa and russia were to go go to war the result would be a nuclear confrontation you couldn't have that so so it's kind of changed the face of the international confrontations and there's a lot written about that among academics and military strategists in the united states and some of that filters into the public and it's worth exploring thanks caleb there's a couple of things that i i, I picked up from what you what you were saying there that you sort of brought our attention to one of them is of course we've talked about uh the sino-soviet split and its impact and its significance but i think you've highlighted again for us the great significance of living in an era where the working class is ideologically confused, very divided, uh, basically disarmed and disunited. And the ruling class, the imperialists, have taken maximum advantage of that to set up all kinds of false trails for us. I mean, they do that anyway, but it was much harder for them to do when we had a strong united communist movement in the days of you know, Mao and Stalin, a, a strong united communist movement with one ideology, one voice that could attract and educate the people and give them a real lesson in class consciousness and, and uh, class organization. And with the collapse of that, the coming of Khrushchev, the Sino-Soviet split, the collapse of that coherent, understanding and ideology leading the mass of working and struggling peoples uh there have been all kinds of cracks and crevices for the usa to 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 creep into and the imperialists and they have done so but i think we have to the lesson we have to learn is not oh my god look how manipulative they are but look at what the trouble that comes from our weakness and the way we recover from that weakness is to get back to studying Marxism and Leninism and to stop being afraid of people's anti-communist prejudices because they have to learn that Marxism is what they need to overcome all these problems and these divides and these differences and this confusion that is really keeping us weak and divided and stupid and malleable as far as the imperialists are concerned. You know, the imperialist system is in such a crisis right now, but the shame of our movement is we're providing no meaningful opposition. We ought to be going from strength to strength at this point, right? But because of, you know, seven decades or more of confusion uh, and uh, chaos in our movement, 
uh, we're not in a in a fit state to unify. It's it's part of we'll talk another time about the anti-imperialist platform and what that's trying to do. So that's a really important uh, lesson I think we need to learn. The other you talked about proxy warfare, and I think you're right. There's two um, the, the rise of proxy warfare shows us two things really. One, yes, there is that fear of direct confrontation and a kind of recognition that um, it's hard to predict that you might win a direct confrontation. In fact, they don't win their confrontations with even small and backward outfits. So it seems to me pretty clear they definitely won't win in a direct confrontation. But the logic of the crisis is impelling them towards the confrontation nevertheless. So since they're desperate to destroy Russia, desperate to destroy China, they want to loot them for everything they can get. They want to destroy them, their, you know, their ability to remain economically and politically independent. Um, they're trying as best as they can to use proxy forces rather than an invasion. And apart from that fear of direct confrontation, I think there's something else at work here, which is their own unpopularity and the unpopularity of their wars at home. You know, you send your troops somewhere. It's a direct political act that the people will have feelings about and a response to. And those people will come back and talk about the conditions of the fighting, the, the way the war is being waged. These things have a tendency to get out of control, to radicalize uh, populations. And of course, the population is already uh, like a tinderbox. You know, they're suffering so much from the crisis that open warfare is something that, that our leaders are very nervous about. They do their best to whip up jingoism. You know, they've created, turned Putin and Xi uh, into monsters for us to be terrified about. And yet still their wars are not popular and their propaganda is viewed with an immense amount of cynicism by the mass of the poor workers. You know, people who are still materially benefiting from the bribes of imperialism have a tendency to swallow the propaganda and repeat it without thinking because they still feel comfortable and they still want to tell themselves that they live in a democracy and their privileges have been earned and all the rest of it. But the mass of the poor are very cynical. They've learned that they're being lied to. And they, even if they don't pay a huge amount of attention to the fact that they're being lied to, if they, whenever they stop and think about it, like, you know, I have a feeling a lot of this is nonsense, right? You know, it doesn't wash so easily with them. So it, it, it's, it's very dicey, I think, for the imperialists to get into mobilizing directly for these wars. They like, they prefer to hide behind a cloak of support and deniability. I mean, the reality is there's plenty of US and British troops in Ukraine, but they're, they're in such a form that they can be denied. Officially, NATO is not at one. They, they repeat this mantra endlessly, even while sending all of NATO's weapons and training into Ukraine. NATO is not at war with Russia. Uh, we are just supporting Ukraine to defend itself, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of, of, of strands in there. But um, I just want to come back to this question of, um, you know, the new world war and whether there's whether there's a way to defeat it or whether, in fact, it's going to be through the process of the war that we're going to find uh, our victory. Because ultimately, our only solution, the this only solution for humanity and certainly for the oppressed people, which is the vast majority of humanity, is to get rid of imperialism. There's no, there's no other solution to our problems because the longer capitalism exists, the more immiserated the mass of the population becomes. And it's only going to continue. It's only going to get worse. There is no way out of that. The, 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 
you know, that's why Marx and Engels said in 1848, you know, the one thing capitalism produces more than anything else is its own grave diggers. It has signed its own death warrant by being unable to keep its own slaves in even a slave-like condition. You know, they become so pauperized that, you know, it, it, it's not sustainable, right? So in which case, if imperialism has to go, then it has to be defeated. In which case, the other side, the side of national liberation, of socialism, must win, right? So, I mean, I guess my view is the situation we're in now, the big job we have to do where we are is to show the workers in our countries that they have to take a side in this fight. Because if they don't, it's they're condemning themselves to decades more of suffering. We this a big fight is coming. The system is in crisis. It's driving to war. We didn't tell it to start the war. It's doing it by itself, despite the fact it probably can't win. We need to make sure that everything possible is done to strengthen the forces capable of defeating imperialism, which means in our home countries, building the mass movements that will support Russia, support China, support the DPRK, support every country that's targeted Iran. Venezuela, Cuba, that's targeted by US imperialism, really meaningfully support it, not with pieces of paper, but with their action, you know, sabotage the NATO war machine and really do what you can, do our active part to bring about the defeat and destruction of NATO, US imperialism and the whole imperialist uh, setup. Caleb. Oh, I don't really have anything to add, um, but um, I'm sure Harpal has quite a bit to say. Um, just, just really, I don't think I have anything to say to enlighten any, any of you, but I, I would say a couple of things. The, the main thing is that the imperialists and their flunkies in the social democratic circles and even people who call themselves communists uh, might poo-poo is, oh, you can't talk about Marxism and Leninism, it'll fright, fright, frighten the workers. Uh, oh, you, you can't talk about um, Zionism because it'll frighten a lot, lot of people. You'll be called anti-Semite. This is how they brought down Project Cor Corbyn. Corbyn was not a revolutionary. Corbyn was a kind of, if, if it's possible to make such a ridiculous statement, he was a decent social democrat. You know, the two things don't go together in my view, decent social democrat. But he really thought he could, by putting forward a left-wing program, mobilize workers in Britain, and he actually did, did. And the bourgeoisie became so frightened of this social democrat that they used every dirty trick. They even cornered him for being an anti-Semite. He's not an anti-Semite. He has supported the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. That is not being, being, being anti-Semite. But the problem is he was so spineless, he was so weak-kneed, he buckled under. And there was a mural in the city of London, which showed various monopoly capitalists. A couple of them happened to be Jewish figures, and this was described as being anti-Semite. Why can't you call a monopoly capitalist a monopoly capitalist, whatever their national and ra 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 racial origin? They're a monopoly capitalist from India, they're a monopoly capitalist from Europe, they're a monopoly capitalist from many, many countries, and there are Jews who are among the big financiers and big, big capitalists, which partly is explained also by historical reasons, discrimination against the Jews, preventing them from joining 
any other profession. So they got well represented in the liberal professions, education, etc., as as well as as finance. There's nothing shameful about the fact that Jews became big big capitalists. Everybody else was becoming. Why not? Why not Jews? But if you can't say, you know, that there is a Jewish monopoly capitalist. It's easy to say there's Morgan, there's Rockefeller. Why can't you say that there are some Jews among them? But of course, Corbyn couldn't stand that. Equally, there are people in the communist movement. They are frightened that if you actually are detected as a Marxist Leninist, if you actually are known to even read Stalin's books, this will put people off and you will just destroy the movement. On the contrary, it's people who run away from principles were actually the instruments for the destruction of the communist movement and the working class movement. The working class movement has to stand firm by its principles and create its own organization. No matter how long it, it, it takes, it, it will it will win. You think after the 1905 revolution in Russia, people hope that 10 years later there will be the October Revolution? There was precisely because Lenin stuck to the, the, the Bolshevik principles. Just before the October Revolution, Kamenev came and said to Stalin, you know, sorry, said to Lenin, no, we do not want to be a little propagandist group, we want to be with the workers. And Lenin said, no, at this moment, what you need is a small propagandist group, which puts actually before the proletariat the, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And the masses at this moment are very much infected by war hysteria and they have become overwhelmed by the sweep of na nationalism. We need to stand, stand, stand against it. So there's nothing shameful in being in, min in a minority. Minorities can become majorities and majorities, if they follow the wrong policy, can become minorities and can get obliterated. The perfectly good example is of the Soviet Union. Comrade Xi Jinping recently said that the Russian proletariat captured power with 200,000 members in the Bolshevik party. They won the war against fascism when they had five or six million members and they lost power when they had 20 million members. Nobody came to defend the party and its, its rule by arms in their hands. And that is something to learn from. If you lose your principles, it doesn't matter what the membership is, it gets completely gutted from inside. And that's what revisionism did. It actually hollowed out the communist movement. When the communist movement spoke with the backing of its convictions and principles, it was a voice to be heard. To be heard. It had to be token, taken note of. Nobody took Stalin for a joke. When he made a statement, which was not very often, it had to be taken very seriously. Everybody had to stand up to attention that this is something serious, serious going on. Because Stalin, whatever the bourgeois propaganda, hadn't become the leader of the Soviet proletariat through terror, as Robert Conkos, the CIA agent and paid agent of imperialism would say. It, he had become important. He had become the representative spokesperson of the Soviet proletariat by his correct leadership leading the Soviet Union through very difficult trials and, and, and trials of strength against imperialism and internal enemies, building socialism through the five-year plans and then leading the Soviet people to victory in the anti-fascist war. It wasn't the Americans and the British, let alone the French, 
got done within six weeks of Nazi invasion. It is the Soviet Union that broke the back of the Nazi armies. At that time, it was recognized even by such an anti-Soviet, anti-Bolshevik reactionary as Winston Churchill. You can read his history of the Second World War. They haven't bottlerized it yet. They haven't changed it yet. You can read there what he says about the contribution of, of the Soviet Union. You can read the statements of de Gaulle. You can read the statements of 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 of, of, um, of President Roosevelt. They all admitted what the Soviet Union had done. The honor of victory against fascism belonged to the Soviet Union and the and the and and and, and, and the Red Army. And they could only do that because the Soviet Union followed and worked and fought under the banner of Marxism-Leninism. That was the key to its victory. And that was the foundation stone for going to further forward victory. As Stalin said at the 18th Party Congress, to what do we owe our successes, comrade? He said, because we worked under the banner of Marxism-Leninism. And what is the lesson to be drawn? We must continue to work under the banner of Marxism-Leninism if we want to be successful in our work of construction and in guarding the Soviet Union against imperialist uh, uh, bandits. And the Soviet Union was very successful. Every attempt was made by imperialist countries to get the Soviet Union to be defeated for, uh, during the Second World War. But she didn't because she had the strength and the support, not only of its ideology and the Communist Party and the Communists, but also of the peoples of the Soviet Union, including the Ukrainian people, who fought in the millions to defend their, their motherland. They were not the Azov Battalion of fascists and Benderites, whom the freedom-loving Americans and the British and the French are supporting these days. These were real Soviet people. And it breaks my heart to see all that which was built by the Soviet Union now being destroyed by this in this in this war. War which is not really a war between Ukraine and Russia. It's a war between NATO, waged by the combined forces of NATO neo-Nazi, NATO imperialists against the people of Russia, against Russia, in order to break up Russia and to turn it into small digestible pieces to prolong their looting and prolong their, the, the life of a dying, dying system. And really there's a lesson to be learned. We must not be afraid of speaking the truth. Even if, like Galileo, we are alone. In the end, it wasn't the, His Holiness the Pope who won, it was Galileo who, who won. And every scientist, even the church now, says that the earth moves around the sun. Nobody denies it. You have to be a lunatic to, 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 to deny that. And this is there's a lesson for it. We are the followers of Galileo. We are the followers of Marx and Engels. We are the followers of Lenin and, and Stalin, and we. Uh, this is the key to our success. And let people call us little sectarian uh, formations, you know, who are not with the people and who will never make a success. No, we will make a success. It will not happen in my lifetime. I'm fully cognizant of it. I'm fully realistic about it. But it will come in your lifetime, and you then see that there are. As Nikolai Chernyshevsky would say, there are joys in our street. Thanks, Dad. Caleb, before we wrap, wrap up, 
I, I think we're ready to conclude. I think I think that's a great place to end. Uh, so yeah. Can Thank I just you. can I yeah, just go ahead. add yeah. a last a last thing as we as we finish? Uh, because as you've said, Dad, you know the importance of the truth. Uh, and, of, and of science. I was reading again uh, the beginning of the Communist Manifesto the other day, and it starts with that line, a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. And what is, it, essentially he's talking about anti-communism and that, that fear and the way that everybody's accusing everybody else of being a communist, right? And that has never gone away, has it? And wh why has it fundamentally, what is anti-communism? It's a fear of the masses. It's a fear of the latent power of the oppressed that will one day sweep away this system. And how will it do it? It will do it by combining the power of scientific socialism, of Marxism, with the power of a mass movement. And we cannot give up the mission to bring those two things together because that is our liberation. That's why our rulers are so scared of Marxism. And that's why we must never let go of it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.